the steps to end and redress this genocide. I am up against a truck. The frustration, it's unbelievable. You've seen their eyes, like uh, they're just wearing it. Today on Context, hearing Canada's First Nations voices, a complicated dispute has resurfaced between Canada's First Nations and Canadian commercial fishermen. It comes down to a peace treaty signed by the Crown in the 1760s, when the Supreme Court ruled that Indigenous communities have the right to fish for a moderate livelihood. But there was also a clarification that affirmed Ottawa's right to regulate and ensure conservation. We recognize the rights uh, of Indigenous communities uh, to, uh, to moderate livelihood fishing. Indigenous fishermen say non-Indigenous fishers have threatened and intimidated them for their off-season fishery, vandalizing Indigenous vessels, traps and equipment. Today on the program, former New Brunswick politician Susan Levi-Peters, along with the president of the Maritime Fishermen's Union, Lex Brukowski, present their concerns. And Professor Karen Lawford joins us to speak about the most vulnerable of the Indigenous population, women and girls. And on the queue, Collie Wood and Chris McQuee discuss the road to reconciliation. But first, here's Maggie John. Fishing is part of First Nations culture and identity. It's also a constitutionally protected right. Treaties, crisis, and reconciliation is what our next guest, former Elsa Puktuk First Nation Chief Susan Levi-Peters, is educating us on. Susan, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me, Maggie. So what is really happening on the ground now, especially when it comes to this fisheries crisis? Well, there, there's a lot of conflict happening uh, because there's a lot of misunderstanding between uh the definition of moderate livelihood and who has the right to it. So there's there's been a lot of um, lot of lot of stuff happening. There was boats burning. There was stuff happening, but it has kind of died down a little bit now. Mm. There's been more uh, negotiations uh, going on. Well, that, that's what I was going to ask you. What are the efforts in trying to solve this dispute that you know of? Well, actually. Um, couple of the First Nations in Nova Scotia got together and they fought the, the fishery company, uh, the Clearwater Company, 50% of it. So uh, I think what's happening now is that my people are getting together and they're getting involved more in a moderate livelihood of getting involved. It's just of just going out fishing and, and getting into um, disputes and all that. Yeah, it's interesting that you bring that up. we That's new news that uh, Mi'kmaq First Nations uh, people have just purchased 50% of clear water uh, fisheries. How can you see that maybe changing this dispute um, in the near future? Oh, it's... it's uh... It's going to change it a lot because now we're we're part of the the society, part of the economics. Like before, we were more of a um, a liability. Nobody wanted to work with us, and when we talked about moderate livelihood, we would be arrested or or we would we would be confronted. Now with this. Uh, is showing there's a lot of partnership and people uh, are trying to uh, learn about each other mm. and working together so that we won't have another of what happened in, in uh, Digby or, or even what happened here in New Brunswick uh, seven years ago. So it's we're moving forward and it's very... Um, 
it's very positive and very overwhelming because it's very hard when you're in the front lines and it's very hard when you face poverty or you're homeless or jobless and 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 you see it in 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 uh in the media saying that first nation people are getting millions and and all this and you're back home facing poverty or homelessness right. it it doesn't it doesn't make sense and then when you go out to try to earn a moderate livelihood then you're criminalized mm. so so there's there needs to be a lot of education and that's happening right now with a lot of um social media a lot of um uh you know sharing of stories like like uh like you are today so like we are today like sharing it with canada so yes it's it's uh we're moving in a very very positive um direction right. from where we've come from yeah as as a christian what should be the faith response to this dispute to this um action that we're seeing right now in nova scotia See that there, what it what what it is is like to understand us as Mi'kmaq people. Like we have these peace and friendship treaties mm. that were signed in the 1700s, and and all it is is that we have peace and friendship with each other, and that's why Canada is a diverse country. You have multi different cultures here in in Canada, and that's part of the treaty that everybody is welcome as long as you protect Mother Earth for seven seven generations to come mm. and and you respect each other's uh laws and and that goes with us so we have but unfortunately for the last hundred years since the residential school and everything we've been put in little reserves and mm. and you know we faced the cycle of abuse and all that so now we're coming out and historically we were known as the peacekeepers uh, we had treaties with, with the Pope uh, going back, with France, with Great Britain, and they're all peace and friendship treaties. Right. And all these things that we can all live in, in peace and harmony amongst each other. So it's, it's uh, for me, being a historian, like studying my histories and being brought up with it, seeing something like this, uh, having a positive um, agreement or a resolution coming to coming that way is is very it's good it's very positive for us mm. because we face a lot of um, negativity yeah. you know even with the murdered and missing indigenous women like it's hard for us to go even outside our reserve um because you're of looking, the culture shock and everything you're seeing that this is hopeful this is a hopeful transition and a hopeful change Definitely, yes, okay. very hopeful. And it's a very, um, something to look forward to and something that's um, our our kids will have um, jobs or will have a future, a positive future. So yes, it's, it's very, very hopeful. All right, Susan Levi-Peters, thank you so much for joining us and informing us about what's happening in this dispute and crisis among uh, many indigenous peoples. Thank you so much again. Thank you, Maggie. Terry LeBlanc is here to let's talk about this recent big news of Mi'kmaq First Nations 50% stake in Clearwater Seafood Incorporated for $1 billion. Again, big news. How does this affect the fisheries dispute in Nova Scotia? Well, Maggie, that remains to be seen uh, since it is such a recent announcement and the details of it have yet to be released uh, in terms of how the Mi'kmaq fishers uh, and the Mi'kmaq Fishery Consortium uh, consisting of seven communities in Nova Scotia uh, are going to deal with this. Um, as you may recall, Clearwater was referenced by both the Mi'kmaq fishers and the non-Mi'kmaq fishers during this dispute as a large corporate uh, 
uh, fishing giant that uh, has essentially an, an unrestricted season and unrestricted range in the off coast uh, or offshore fishery. So, so it remains to be seen. We'll, we'll know in the days ahead, I suppose, as the details of the announcement are released uh, in terms of how the Mi'kmaq and the other members of the consortium will be, will be dealing with um, the, the work of Clearwater Fisheries. Tensions in Nova Scotia between the commercial lobster fishers and indigenous fishers are ongoing. Both communities are under duress. Lex Burkowski is the new president of the Maritimes Fishermen's Union. Lex, thanks for joining us today. Tell us what's going on from your side of the dispute. We're trying to find a resolution here to this conflict. There has been a lot of talk over the past couple of weeks that this is a race issue. What would you say about that? Um, this is the farthest thing from the truth. Uh, this community here is the friendliest uh, community that I've ever come across. I've traveled the world and lived uh, many different parts of this planet and this country. And uh, to me, uh, when I moved here about 11 years ago, um, this community welcomed me with the uh, open arms and uh, gave me all the tools and opportunities uh, that anybody would need to be where I am now. So to hear uh, that anybody is racist here is the furthest thing, uh, furthest thing from the truth. Okay. What are your thoughts on the reports of violence and fires that kind of started this off in September? Uh, well, of course, uh, we condemn all the, all, any kind of acts of violence. Uh, uh, in fact, uh, you, you know, it's, it's, people are frustrated. Yeah, it's, it's hard to uh, control any particular individual that would, uh, that would have gone over the edge. But uh, we definitely don't agree with any act of violence. We always wanted to resolve this at the table. And we're still looking for that seat at that table. Unfortunately, right up until now, we still have no seats and uh, we still have no one to talk to. <clears throat> Okay, let, let's delve into that a little bit more. You say that there's no you want to have a seat at the table, but there is no seat at the table. Explain why. What is stopping this conversation from moving forward then? Well, it seems like uh, nobody wants to have the uh, representative from the commercial fisherman side uh, at the table to hear out uh, to hear our concerns and our opinions and our input uh, from what I've been hearing uh, lately and uh, over the weeks is uh, basically uh, as Chief Mike Sack and uh, uh, Minister uh, uh, Fishery Minister Bernadette Jordan uh, stated that it's uh, a nation-to-nation -nation, uh, discussion and uh, that creates a lot of uncertainty and uh, worries for the commercial fishermen because their livelihood is being discussed without their input. Okay, and recently your predecessor, uh, Joel Camo, resigned, stepped down from, from this position that you've just inherited. Um, you're obviously hoping to bring change. What change are you hoping to bring forward to your group? Well, like I said, uh, we're at least uh, trying uh, to have a dialogue with somebody, either uh, whether it be Bernadette Jordan or uh, uh, the First Nation community. We just need to uh, sit down at the table and all agree on something. Because uh, as of right now, everybody has their own opinion and their own strategy, and uh, nobody's agreeing on anything. 
So unless we can sit down and have a dialogue, this this conflict will continue. I'm curious, what would what would it look like for you to uh, feel like you're being justified that the the fishermen, the commercial fishermen, are being heard? What do you want to see happen? Uh, well, we want to uh, make sure we are taking care of our uh, lobsters. Uh, you know, conservation is a big issue here. Uh, we want to make sure we have lobsters for years to come for both uh, the commercial fishermen and the First Nation. Uh, we believe the way this uh, moderate livelihood is practiced right now is uh, not a good conservation method. Um, we believe it's destroying the stock and we should all sit down and uh, figure out a way how we can both uh, uh, practice our commercial fishery and moderate livelihood uh, in a way where it's not going to uh, deplete the stock. Okay. By, uh, for example, like uh, having a certain season where we can fish a, a certain species during that season and let the off season for, uh, you know, to, to let the, the stock replenish. Okay, it is a complex dispute, complex issue. Thank you again, Lex Burkowski, president of the Maritimes Fishermen's Union. Thank you for your time today. Coming up, missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls and the horrific case of Joyce Esheshaquan. What do these cases say about how Indigenous women are treated in Canada? Queen's University professor Karen Lawford joins us for the conversation. steps to end and redress this genocide must be no less monumental than the combination of systems and actions that have worked to maintain colonial violence for generations. The rise in news headlines across Canada about issues affecting Indigenous peoples have been tragic, not the least of which was last year's shocking missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls report. The report found persistent and deliberate human and Indigenous human rights violations and abuses are at the root cause behind Canada's staggering rates of violence against Indigenous women, girls and people and calls for transformative legal and social changes to resolve the crisis. Professor Karen Lawford teaches gender studies at Queen's University and is an expert in Indigenous health and wellness. Professor Lawford, thanks for joining us again on Context today. Thank you for having me. So first question, the final report last year revealed multi-generational and intergenerational trauma and marginalization in the form of poverty, insecure housing and homelessness, along with barriers to education, employment, health care and cultural support. Has anything changed since this report? My understanding is that there's not been systemic um, solutions directed to the numerous issues raised in the report. The issues that we are seeing in this country are actually from systemic abuse, systemic racism, and goals to civilize and assimilate Indigenous peoples. I haven't seen a change, and I doubt anyone else has either. Hmm. It's frustrating, to say the least, wouldn't you say, for, for those that invested in this report and yet to not see any change? 
It is frustrating. I think we might see pockets or small places of improvements to help people, but we're not seeing systemic change in this country. We're not seeing systemic change in the province of Ontario where I live, and we're not seeing systemic change even at the municipal level. During the inquiry, experts and knowledge keepers spoke to specific colonial and patriarchal policies that displaced women from their traditional roles in communities and governance that diminished their status in society, leaving them vulnerable to violence. Is there a change there? Are you seeing a change in community? I think one of the, the challenges to this issue is that when white settlers came to this country to colonize the land, or what is now known as Canada, it was a complete displacement of Indigenous governance systems. And with that, the loss of Indigenous women and Two-Spirits leadership within those governance systems. So these Indian Act reserves that we're seeing and engaging with at the federal level, do they represent our pre-colonial ideas in context of leadership and governance? And I don't think they do. So what I'm hearing is more conversation needs to happen at the table. Definitely more conversation and a change, a shift into the inclusion of Indigenous women and Two-Spirit leaders in our governance systems at all levels of governance, not just the ones that get to be at the big tables with uh, federal leaders. Right. Okay, let's switch to uh, a story that shocked all of us. Joyce Echequan, the mother of seven who died in hospital in Quebec, was verbally abused as she videotaped herself um, as she passed away in hospital. Do you think there is a two-tier system in Canada, one for BIPOC community and one for everyone else? I think there's many levels of healthcare systems in this country. There's a federal healthcare system that is provided to those who live on reserve and Inuit. There's also the federal healthcare system for federal inmates, um, recent immigrants, military, and RCMP. That's just one of them. Then you look at all the healthcare systems on reserves that do not, that are not. Um, under the same type of rules as the Canada Health Act, we have more than two tiers of healthcare systems, and definitely those living and in provinces and those that are white have better healthcare, and all the data shows that. Okay, there's so much to talk to you about, Kara, about Professor Lawford, but our time is up. Thank you again for thank joining you. us today. Again, Professor Karen Lawford, thank you. Thank you. Still ahead, we examine the Christian response on both sides of Canada's complicated Indigenous issues, searching for meaning, healing, and reconciliation. It's very unfortunate what we're going through. I feel their pain. Uh, I'm with them, you know. It latches right on to me. Um, I have to, to ground myself. Uh, you know, I pray every day um, for a, a good result and a, a peaceful peacefulness. Like, um, there's nothing I want more. And now it's time for the queue, an opportunity to discuss different views and opinions on this week's topic. What does a path to reconciliation with First Nations peoples look like? Chris McKee and Kali Wood know that it looks like firsthand. They both work to promote reconciliation and conflict management, bringing truth and understanding into this unique space. Thank you both for being here today. Thank you. 
So Chris, Thanks, let's, Maggie. let's start with you, Chris. Um, there are generations of pain and genocide that has been inflicted on indigenous peoples. Is reconciliation possible? It's absolutely possible, yeah. I mean, we're taking strides every day to move towards that spectrum. And I think it's all about that education component and understanding where we've come from. What, what does education look like for you, Chris? Especially coming from a non-Indigenous perspective. I think education really starts at a young age. And I mean, education for those kids that are in school, those children that are learning. I know when I was in all through my education, we never heard anything about Canadian history. And we learned a lot overseas about the genocide that happened there. But the fundamentals in our own backyard weren't taught. We're, we're getting there and it's starting to be put into schools. But, I mean, we've got a long way to go. And we've also got the gap that my generation who's raising children didn't learn these things. So education also needs to be provided and given the opportunity for that generation as well to know how we move forward. Yeah. Kali, we heard today on our show about the fisheries dispute in Nova Scotia. Uh, we're going to hear about the Caledonia dispute later on um, on our show in another episode. Uh, the missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls report. And the need for changes in everything from health care to safety, among others. What, in your estimation, as someone who teaches on this, what is, what's the first step to reconciliation? Well, you know what? I think uh, looking at reconciliation, you cannot have reconciliation without facing truth. And part of that truth is, you know, a very sad, sad history in our country. And so in order to move reconciliation forward, it goes back to, you know, the question you asked Chris, Chris about education and how are we walking our next generations through this and how are we educating today on, like you said, we're talking about the, the fisheries, the Mi'kmaq fisheries. Uh, you know, when we look back at the treaties and, and understand that history in this country and, you know, those, those signatures that were applied to the treaties and, and the inherent rights of, of land, uh, these are conversations that, because it hasn't been taught in our, in our history, we have a lot of work to do. And as Chris said, it is happening. Uh, but I... I I'm always encouraged when we go and do the work that we do because it is changing. A light has been coming on. And, you know, now that our youth are coming home from school and saying, I learned this in school, parents are actually taking the initiative to, to listen into to, to sessions like this, to go on and do some of their own research, you know, to walk through different exercises that they can go through in learning reading, uh, going to resources, that sort of thing. So there's, there's lots of, lots of ways that we can move it forward, but the truth is, is what's going to heal and move us forward. Mm -hmm. uh, Chris, I wanna hear how you and Kali work together to bring conversation of healing and reconciliation into different workspaces. Tell us how that, what, what that looks like today. Well, I mean, I, I think today's world, it's a, it's a very rare situation when you have a six foot two non-indigenous man on stage with an indigenous mother and matriarch and delivering a message that the wrongs of the past 
are in fact true and we need to recognize them and you get to see that from both sides of the fence so to speak i mean we both got a different lens we both have a different background and just in order to educate we can't just have one perspective when we move forward we need to have multiple perspectives and i think that's the the power of being one humanity and moving in that changing direction together mm. So how much of this pain that we hear of, you know, again, all of these disputes that we're hearing is about is lack of keeping promises, keeping treaties, and going back on the word of our land, Kali? Yeah, I think it's a lot of it. Uh, looking at the disputes right now, you know, uh, with our Mi'kmaq lobster fishermen, it, it goes back to the inherent rights of, you know, um, and looking at the Constitution Act and, and the treaties that were there in Section 35 of the Constitution Act, it, it's very well stated there um, that, you know, we can provide a livelihood uh, from fishing, hunting, trapping and that sort of thing. So it, it very much goes back to the treaties and understanding, you know, long before Canada existed, uh, you know, before North America, we were Turtle Island and and when when the you know when when we signed into these treaties and and gave up land we talk about crown land we talk about these were signed uh agreements that this is how it would continue forward so i think when we're looking at how do we move forward reconciliation how do we share the land and how do we do this in a in a in a good way the creator you know when we look at mother earth and we look at the the two different um ideologies of of what it what it looks like to be land and water keepers and what it looks like to uh to be to be doing this together and i mean obviously we have to just not understanding and as it goes back to the education piece mm -hmm. you don't know what you don't know but then we also have to come to that appreciation of one another's cultures right you know and and understand so yeah I want to hear from both of you on our, our last question. What does faith look like? What does a faith response look like in all of this when we are walking into reconciliation? Chris, what about you? What does faith look like? Well, I think faith looks different from different people's lenses and their place of worship. But as a country and as a world, the one thing that we have in common across the board in every small town, in every community, in every city, everywhere that we go, there's a place of worship. Mm. And, and that's where we need to start. And that worship needs to really move that dial forward. And the fact of the matter is church starts on Monday. Mm. It's not about two hours or three hours, one day a week. Church starts on Monday. And how are we going to lead and how are we going to change going forward in the right faithful way? Yeah, well said. Our time is up. Oh, so much to talk about. Thank you again, Collie Wood and Chris McKee for joining us today. We've covered a lot of ground today on our special Indigenous Peoples program. In the coming weeks, we go to Caledonia to continue the conversation. When I sit down with the leader of the Six Nations land protesters and the mayor of Caledonia, we will listen to both sides of this complex land dispute.
Our world is, today is fraught with injustice and issues that need to be rectified. Of course, we're not going to achieve that in a television program, but we hope that you got a good sense of the long-standing issues plaguing both sides of these historical disputes and the need for healing. Our producers and I on the show, Susan, Batten, Christine, and Alex, work diligently to find both sides of the issues we cover. But it's not always possible, but we would love to hear from you. So please visit our website, Twitter, or Facebook, and let us know your thoughts. We could not do this show without our donors, for whom we are extremely grateful. Christian analysis on news is needed now more than ever. If you'd like to find out more and how you can support, go to our website, context.show. For all of us here, I'm Maggie John. Thanks for watching.